Time's up. That's the title for our lesson. <laughs> All right, we are going to be looking at the last part of Daniel chapter 5. If you want to open your Bibles to Daniel 5, let's pray and then get into our study. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the all the days you give us um, of our lives. We know that um, our lives are numbered and that one day you will call us into your presence and we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, we do ask that we would each redeem our time wisely, however much time is left, and that we would live for you totally, just committed completely to you, to serving you, to loving you, to sharing you with other people to glorifying you. Lord, we thank you for these women. We thank you so much for their hunger and thirst to know you better. Thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy. Thank you for the time of sharing when we learn from one another uh, what somebody else might have gleaned from your, your word that we didn't see. And we thank you for that. We thank you for another year. Thank you, Lord, for completing 29 years in this study. It's totally by your grace. Because as you know, I'm a weak vessel and I want to quit every single year. <laughs> so thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. I ask that he would be our teacher this morning. Fill me with him. And just I pray that I would only say those things that would glorify you and your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 5, as you know, contains the downward spiritual journey of the last king of the Babylonian Empire, and it also serves as a microcosmic prophetic picture of the downward spiritual journey of the whole anti-God, Israeli oppressive world system of the times of the Gentiles, not just a picture of the downward spiral of Belshazzar, but the whole downward spiral of the times of the Gentiles. Just as Belshazzar rejected the testimony of his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually his grandfather, he rejected that testimony about the truth of God and um, did not seek wisdom from God's true wise man, Daniel, during all the years of his rule. And by the way, Belshazzar took the throne of Babylon when he was 19 years old. That's not usually a good idea for someone quite that young to have that much power. He served for, he was king for 17 years and he died when he was 36. But during his entire 17 years of reign, he preferred to trust in the empty, flattering, false answers of worldly men and in his man-made gods rather than going to the true source of knowledge which would be a man like um, Daniel. And as he went, so has gone world history, right? Same old thing. Where do leaders and nations and uh, empires turn for, for counsel and wisdom? They, they turn to the worldly wise men, don't they? Instead of to the people of God, instead of to his scripture, the word of God. Also, as Belshazzar and his lords and his ladies... Um, fulfilled the lust of their eyes and the lust of their flesh and the pride of life, deceiving themselves into thinking that they had peace and safety behind their thick Babylonian walls and their moat, their deep moat, and they thought everything was secure. They were, at, they were safe. While they were in the very process of having their drunken orgy, the thieves, the thieves were actually in the very process of infiltrating their city. And that's exactly, again, how people and nations ever since Babylon have been, foolishly, foolishly neglecting to keep out the true enemy of, of man, of God and man. And who is the true enemy of man? Satan. Um, they have fallen prey to the many alluring tricks in his bag, and he has been at this for a long time, so he's got them down to a real art. But Satan is good at using things to keep men's minds numb, N-U-M-B, numb, from the truth of their perilous condition apart from God. Every ruler, every nation, every empire, every individual without God is but one hour from sudden destruction, right? I mean, if you go out there in the world, people are basically like, is it 1 Thessalonians 5? It was one of your homework questions about everybody saying peace and safety. 
uh, and the thief can come in and just steal everything. People out there in the world don't realize. Uh, they think they're, they're safe and they're secure. Uh, as Belshazzar was slain the very night of his blasphemous, booze-filled, spiritually bankrupt banquet, and as the once mighty Babylonian empire likewise ceased to exist that very night, so also we find out when we read Revelation that in the last part of the times of the Gentiles, those last seven years, the tribulation, so too will mystery Babylon the great cease to exist as a world system forever in just one hour. Same, same old all over again. Well, to this point in our exposition of Daniel chapter 5, we have found that the iniquity of the leading world head of the Gentiles, now this is just with respect to Israel because there were other Gentile powers and nations in the world at that time, but when we talk about the times of the Gentiles, it's always in respect to Israel, those who are oppressing Israel. So we found that the iniquity <coughs> of the leading world head of the Gentiles had reached its apex, the climax, when Belshazzar, who represented that, that uh, kingdom, he was the head, when he dared to use the vessels of the temple of God to praise his Babylonian gods of metal, different various metals and wood and stone. When he did that, it was a direct challenge against Jehovah God. He was pitting his gods against the God of Israel. And we found out it did not take God very long to answer that challenge, did it? First of all, he answered the challenge by using supernatural fingers, or maybe just one finger. That's all it takes to write, one finger. Dip it in ink, you know. <laughs> God's finger doesn't need ink, does it? But a finger appeared in the room. Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine that. Without a hand or a body attached, just a finger. And it wrote a message on the candlestick illuminated wall near where the king was sitting, the drunken king, the young, arrogant, drunken king. And it may have even been above his head. <coughs> and there wasn't a single idol worshiper that could decipher that message, was there? Not a single one of them. And therefore, in his desperate quest to understand what that mysterious finger writing meant, we found that the king was forced to listen to the queen mother's advice, actually her command, and he turned to a man that he had never even bothered to summon into his presence before. In all the 17 years of his reign, this is their first encounter, Belshazzar meeting Belteshazzar. Although he should have. If he had brought him into his presence, maybe he wouldn't be in the pickle he was in right now. If he had brought him in and listened to him, right? But he never had. Now, this man was vastly different, vastly different from everyone else with whom the king had associated and taken counsel all of his life. This one brought into his presence was a man of an extraordinary spirit, because his spirit was the Holy Spirit. He was a man, as the queen said, with great knowledge, wisdom, insight. But he had not been invited to the party, had he? He wasn't on the invitation list. And do you think if he got an invitation, he would have attended? No way, just like the queen didn't want to attend either. Um, he wasn't one of them. He was not of their culture, he didn't believe in their gods, he didn't engage in their ways of entertainment and pleasure. The truth was, however, at this crisis, the king needed someone. He desperately needed someone vastly different from all of his drunken peers and from his impotent wise men who spent their whole lives learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Aren't there so many people like that in our world today, ever learning? I mean, you think of professors in secular universities, and you think of politicians, and you think of even religious men, like the scribes and Pharisees, ever learning, you know, just books and books and reading and reading and learning and learning, filling their head with all this stuff, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth that even a three-year-old can understand about the true God and his one and only Savior. Well, in a second way, God also answered Belshazzar's challenge, not only by the finger writing on the wall, 
but he brought back to the court from almost a quarter century's absence his faithful, uncompromising, bold servant Daniel. Why? Well, because he alone was able to read and interpret for them what God's message said. How could he read it? He knew God. He knew God. He had been uh, in God's word, reading the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others. He had had uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream to interpret, and he understood that the head of gold would be replaced by the silver breast and arms. Then he had had, by this point, his own vision, dream of the ram with two horns, and he knew that the ones who would replace Babylon would be the Medes and the Persians. So he took one look at that handwriting. He knew what it meant because he was in tune with God, and he was able to spiritually discern the revelation of God, which is only, you know, only the children of God can do that. Secular people can read this book and get nothing out of it. I can't imagine because the spirit is in me and I get so much out of it. There's no end to what I get out of it and you, what you get out of it. So he could read God's message of doom on that wall. Well, after having offered Daniel some rewards that Daniel could care less about receiving, Belshazzar was finished speaking. And we then turned in verses 17 to 21 to Daniel's response to Belshazzar's request to interpret the handwriting and then his promised reward. And Daniel told him, go ahead, give those rewards to someone else. Uh, you cannot pay me for my ministry for God. I do it as a duty to him. You know, I am accountable. So he said, keep, keep your rewards, give them to someone else. He would read the writing and he would give the interpretation without compensation. Now, likely no one else had ever dared to speak quite so curtly to the king like that. You know, I don't want your rewards. Most anybody would have wanted them to begin with, right? But an 81-year-old believer in God could care less about all that. And also, I don't think probably anyone had ever exhibited so little fear. Daniel wasn't fearful at all of coming before the king, was he? Uh, but Daniel was working for a far higher and a far more powerful and a far more long-living king, a heavenly king, than that young, arrogant man before him who would not live to see the dawn. Daniel would read the writing because it was his duty. First, however, before he went ahead and did that, he reminded Belshazzar of history, his grandfather's history. And we went over that last week, didn't we? So I don't want to review that and take up the time. Uh, but he reminded him of his own heritage, the history, the, th the things his grandfather had learned that he should have learned from his grandfather and what he had to go through. But of course, he didn't. So now, in this final lesson of Daniel 5, entitled Time's Up, Time's up, Belshazzar. It's over for you. We're going to conclude our discussion of Daniel's response to Belshazzar's request to interpret the handwriting in the third part of our outline, which is, in, which is called a doomed Belshazzar. What have we looked at so far? We looked at a degenerate Belshazzar, a distraught Belshazzar, a desperate Belshazzar, and now we move on to look at a doomed Belshazzar, and we'll then end with a destroyed Belshazzar. All right? So let's look at Daniel's rebuke and then his reading of the handwriting on the wall. So look with me at verses 22 to 28. He speaks right after having reminded him how his grandfather had been driven from the sons of men and made like a beast and in the field and all that until he learned that the most high God ruled in the kingdom of men. All right, now look at verse 22. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart Though thou knewest all this, you're without excuse, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, which see not. Oops, skipped a line. Gold of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. That's pretty bold, isn't it? 
pretty bold. This guy hasn't changed a bit since he was a teenager. He's just even gotten more bold with age. All right, then he goes ahead and he's going to interpret. He says, then was the part of the hand, just the part of the hand, not even a whole hand, the part of the hand. What part? Fingers. <laughs> Sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many, takel, yefarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many. I was going to say what that means. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Takel. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Paris. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. We'll stop right there. All right. Belshazzar had ignored all the warnings given to him by the history of Nebuchadnezzar, his own grandfather. When he and his drunken dignitaries, that almost seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Oxymoron. Morm. <laughs> I can't think of words today. Moron. It's a moron. Oxymoron. You know, drunken dignitaries. <laughs> but when they made light of God himself in their cups, you know, they were mocking, making light of God. You know what else they were doing? They were <clears throat> making light of their, their own history, those portions of their own history about which not only Belshazzar knew, but I think all of them in that room knew about the fiery furnace, about Nebuchadnezzar living as a beast for seven years, about the dreams he had had, and Daniel. They all knew that. That was their history. However, speaking specifically to the king, who represented all of them, Belsh, uh, Daniel said, Though thou knewest all this, you have not humbled your heart. You haven't humbled your heart. You should have learned from your grandfather. You know, learn the easy way. He didn't learn the easy way, did he? Why don't you learn this the easy way, grandson? No, they have to learn the hard way themselves, don't they? Rather, he goes on, he says, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven by bringing forth the vessels from his house in order to drink wine with all your friends and your women to praise a bunch. And here he really, he really hammers home the truth about idols. You know, you lift up God's holy vessels in order to praise a bunch of sightless, deaf, mindless chunks of silver and gold, and brass and iron, wood and stone, that you call gods. I mean, that would be like worshiping this candlestick up here, or this chair, or this podium. It's just the height of, of illogical, I can't think of another word except stupidity. Illogical stupidity to worship something that you know where it came from, because you know the people that made it. Isn't it? It's just crazy. And so he hammered home the truth of it. He said, you're doing not that. I mean, the, the room is surrounded with all these statues, these idols that are looking at them blank and can't think, can't uh, speak, hear, anything. Because they're just a chunk of metal. And he says, you're praising them while at the same time you're mocking the God in whose hand your breath, next breath is. That is pretty wild, pretty dumb, isn't it? You know, God, our next breath is in his hands. Our next heartbeat is in his hands. And he says, and in whose all your ways are, you owe everything that you are to him. And you're mocking him. Every power of the king was God-given, wasn't it? He wouldn't sit on his throne if God hadn't put him there. We already learned he sets up kings, takes down kings. Belshazzar's breath, his life, his throne, his lineage that he was so proud of, you know, that he was ro of royalty, his, all of his opportunities, his whole kingdom, <clears throat> even his capacity for pleasure, which he was <clears throat> abusing with his immorality, with his drunkenness and everything, his, his ability to fear, his ability to think, everything was given to him by God. And yet Belshazzar sat on his earthly throne with no reverence whatsoever, for the heavenly throne. He exercised his kingship with no honor given at all to the king of kings. He entered into all the avenues of his own self-centered life 
and enjoyed all the blessings of heaven with absolutely no veneration for the giver of all those blessings. How many people out in the world are enjoying their lives so self-centeredly and thinking how wonderful they are and not even ever giving one word of praise to the one who's given them everything they have and everything they are, the one who invented their DNA? Mm. Belshazzar had been living as though Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had never lived and as though the great lessons of the past had never been taught, which sadly is the truth for much of America today. Not looking at all to what our forefathers learned and um, <clears throat> knew and why they came to this country to begin with and were not learning at all from history. Well, Daniel did not answer Belshazzar, we notice right away, with the respect that he had had for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember back... Um, in chapter 4, was that chapter with the great dream, the great tree? Yeah, yeah, chapter 4. When he heard the king give him, relay to him that second God-given dream about the mighty tree and how it was cut down, immediately when Daniel heard that, he knew that it was not good news for the king, right? It was a warning of impending serious judgment. And he didn't even, it troubled him so much that he didn't even speak for the space of an hour, it said. Huh? He was astonished and troubled in his spirit. And when he did speak, he told the king in all sincerity and concern and love for the king. He said, I wish that this dream, this prophecy of this dream was not about you, but that it was about those who hate you. I wish it was about your enemies. He really, I mean, he displayed true concern and he's speaking for God. He's God's representative, right? He had a love for the king, Nebuchadnezzar, that God had for King Nebuchadnezzar. But there, there's no such display of, of respect or a troubled spirit in Daniel for Belshazzar, is there? This arrogant young king had deliberately, even in the face of much light, he had deliberately taken up the position of an insolent enemy to Jehovah God. He had haughtily and he had ostentatiously magnified his gods so as to insult, to purposely insult the true God. And so Daniel did not have any respect for him because neither did God. Well, in this, Belshazzar pictures, again, the, the last character of the sin of the times of the Gentiles. Think all the way to the end part of the times of the Gentiles, the, the feet and the toes, the revived Roman Empire. When, during the tribulation, when that empire is ruling and they are persecuting the Israel, um, despite much light, think of how much light of the truth that had been given to them over all the long history of mankind. They have had miracle after miracle, not just a fiery furnace and a handwriting on the wall, but they've had all the miracles of scripture, the, word, the complete word of God. They've had the testimony of many, many Old Testament saints. They've had the testimony for some 2,000 years of the church. And then they have the testimony of uh, the the 144,000 Jews and the faithful remnant of believing Jews during the tribulation and Gentiles that, like Nebuchadnezzar that come to know God. They have all of that light and all of that truth in that final form of this long period of time. And yet, just like Belshazzar, they will be in deliberate opposition to the true God, the God of Israel. The judgment that falls, just like with Belshazzar, the judgment that will fall at the end of that period of time will no longer be remedial. It will be past the time for repentance. No more opportunities to repent because the composite sin of both the final king of Babylon, the Antichrist, and his Babylonian-style kingdom will be rebellion against God in spite of more than abundant evidence as to who he is. They even know where all that turmoil and all that uh, wrath is coming from. They acknowledge it's from God and it's the wrath of the lamb. And yet, fist in his face, 
just like Belshazzar, open rebellion against him. Well, finally, in verse 24, Daniel got around to talking to the king about the writing on the wall. He told him that the part of the hand that wrote the message had been sent from him. Him is a pronoun, so to find out who him is, what do we have to do? We have to go back, find out who it's speaking of. And if you go back to verse 23, the him refers to the Lord of heaven. Whose finger was that? The Lord of heaven. And I think that Belshazzar already suspected that to be the case. <laughs> but when he heard it actually spoken by this old Jew with so much authority, it had to have been very frightening. Or you would think so. Don't you think his knees should start knocking together again and his spine become like rubber again? Doesn't say that it did. But I would think he should have been because he had just foolheartedly challenged God, presumptuously thinking that all the God-sent experience that had happened to others would not happen to him. Oh yeah, my grandfather had to be like a cow out in the field for seven years, but that's not going to happen to me. Isn't that how the people are out there? You know, that might happen to her, that might happen to him, but it's never going to happen to me. That's presuming on God, isn't it? Well, something we should know as we now turn to look at Daniel's translation of the words, and there were only three actual words, one of them was repeated, that were written on the wall. And you probably all know this already, but the Old Testament was written in two languages. What were they? Mostly Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, and we happen to be in one of the chapters that was written in Aramaic. Daniel chapter 5 was written in Aramaic. And in those two languages, there are no vowels. They omit vowels. That would be hard, wouldn't it? Okay, so this means that Daniel, when he sat down to write this chapter, he wrote it in Aramaic, and in his uh, writing, he wrote... Now, I don't know what language that writing was put in, probably Aramaic or Chaldean, um, but he put it in Aramaic, didn't he? He wrote it down for us in Aramaic. And it came across as a string of Aramaic consonants. Can you see that? Um, I know there's some vowels in there, and I'll explain that in a minute. But look at the top line for a minute. No, I got it. Uh, therefore, to read the scripture in English. Now, this is not Aramaic, right? Aramaic looks different. Hebrew looks different. It looks like a bunch of little scroll, scrolly things. <laughs> But this is English, obviously you know that. So to read it in English, we have to replace the Aramaic consonants with the closest equivalent uh, to English. And sometimes an Aramaic consonant is closer to one of our English vowels. And I know that's confusing, but don't worry about it. Don't trouble your pretty heads because we don't need to worry about it. Linguists have figured this out for us. But um, another thing we do need to know is that both Aramaic and Hebrew, you know, they read their book from the back to the front. They read books backwards. Of course, they would say that about us, right? They say we read a book backwards because we read it from the front to the back. They read the opposite way. Also, when they read a line, they read the line from the right to the left. So if we put our English version of what was written on that plaster wall, of Belshazzar's banquet hall, it would have looked something like this. The first line, and I'm going to say it out loud for the sake of the tape, okay? But it would have looked like N-I-S-R-P-U, first word, space, L-Q-T, space, A-N-M, space, A-N-M. Because they read from that way to that way. So what I did is I turned it around for us to see it. And this is the way we in English would read it. M-N-A-M-N-A-T-Q-L-U-P-R-S-I-N. Mina, Mina, Tickle, you parson. All right? Now there are some commentaries, linguists, scholars, that say that perhaps God wrote the message in a square so that it would look like this. Four letters at the top, four letters in the middle, 
four letters at the bottom, but you read from right to left, so it would be, and you go down, Mina, M-N-A, Mina, M-N-A, T-K-L, Takel, or it could be T-Q-L, and P-R-S, Paris. Get it? All right. I'll put that back here. Now, if you notice something else in the King James, uh, of course, well, no, I'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> or do I? Yeah, I'll get to that later. Oh, all right, I'll get to that later. Uh, the author of the message was who? who? Who wrote it? God is the author of the message. Okay, now he purposely used words that had double meanings. Every one of these words has a double meaning to it. And actually, every one of the words can also have a triple meaning to it. God is so deep, he can use just a basic little word and have so much meaning. Now, Daniel picked up right away on the double meanings of the, each one of these words. And we know that because he gave it the, both meanings in his interpretation of each word. But the third meaning of each word is a monetary value. There was such a coin known as a mina. And there was one known as a shekel or a tekel. And then there was one called a Perez, different monetary values. And it was kind of like, um, maybe this is what confused the wise men when they looked at it and they couldn't figure out, because to them it would be saying like Amina, Amina, a shekel, and a half Amina, <laughs> which to us would be like saying a dollar, a dollar, a penny, and a half dollar. And you'd look at that and you'd say, well, I wonder what that has to do with anything. And so they might have taken that meaning for those words. But Daniel, he knew the real meaning. And so when he was interpreting the first word, many, M-E-N-E, -E, in the King James it says, and it could be M-N-A because there's no vowels, so you could probably put an E or an A. But he said many means to number or to finish. It can mean either one, to number, to count, or to finish. And that's why he said this is the interpretation of the thing, Mani. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. He gave both meanings for that word in verse 28. To finish carries the idea of a fixed limit on something. Like when we say a man's days are numbered. So it was time for the Babylonian kingdom uh, to be over. It had been numbered. I mean, Jeremiah had said it would last for how many years? They'd be in captivity 70 years, and the kingdom Babylon only lasted as long as they were used by God to chasten Israel. So she only lasted a few years more than 70. Her time was up. She had reached her limit. It wasn't the end of the nations that made up the kingdom, but it was the end of Babylon ruling over those nations. Now who would rule over all those nations? and even a few more, the Medes and the Persians. So, many, and notice it's repeated twice, many, many. It refers not only to the end of Babylon's rule, but the end of who else's rule? Belshazzar's rule. So one many, you know, your number's up for the kingdom. One many, your number's up for the king, for Belshazzar. And you know what? That ties in perfectly, just perfectly, with the double use of the word fallen whenever the scripture speaks of Babylon's ultimate destruction. Doesn't it say Babylon is fallen, is fallen? We talked about that last week. So there you go. Many, many. Your time is up, you're fallen, you're fallen. One, I think, also, and it's an emphasis on there is no redemption, it's too late. That's emphasized by the double use of that word. Also, I think it's one, fallen for the religious world system of Babylon, and one fallen or one many for the political world system of Babylon. And maybe that's where the money ties in, you know, the, the many and the shekels and the paras could be connected with the economic. It's all, God is just so deep. I don't know if you're following me, but it's just really, really deep. Just one little simple word. Actually, three letters. Oh, amazing. Well, takel, takel, T-E-K-E-L, -E -E means to weigh, and it also means to be wanting. So that's why in verse 27, Daniel says, Thou art weighed in the balances, and art found what? Wanting. It's a very meaningful word. 
As used in this context, it spoke of God putting a person on a just balance. You know, you can see a scale with two sides of it. You know, you put the person on the, the scale, and it's perfectly just. You know, it hasn't been worked on and cheated. And that person is judged accordingly. Now, outwardly, Babylon had all the appearance of a rich government. You know, they had, they had all the pomp, the ceremony, all its pride, feasts, pleasures, beautiful city. Uh, Belshazzar was ruling over the people of Babylon. He was also ruling over the people of God. And it looked so grand. You know, outwardly, it all looked so magnificent, right? Just like that image in chapter 2 of the dream. looks so great from the outside, but really, the truth of it was that it was a sham. The kingdom and its king were not at all doing their job as they should have been, uh, that, as they were established to do by God. Why had God set them up? To do his will. But were they? No, they were part, part, there I go, I can't say that word. You know why I can't say that word? Because I never party. <laughs> but they were having a party instead of defending their city. Can you imagine? Have the enemy all around them, and they're not defending their city. They're having this party. Um, they're, they're not caring for the poor. They're on their own. You know, all the suburbs around Babylon, they're on their own. Nabonidus was trying to help them, but Belshazzar wasn't. And they're certainly, I mean, they're mocking the people of God. Remember, oh, he's a captive of Jewry. They, they scorned the Jews. And instead of doing their job, God-given job, they're intoxicated, they're immoral, they're insolent, they're irreverent, um, even as they're being overtaken by the enemy force. It was a sham government with an impertinent king. And when God took them all up to weigh them on his scales of justice, he found a whole lot of them completely worthless, deficient. You've been weighed and found deficient. You've been found wanting, greatly wanting. Well, let's move on to Perez. Now, Perez, P-E-R-E-S, or Eupharsin means to divide. To divide, or it can refer to Persia. Now, here's where I get into that explanation. I thought it was earlier. But you notice that in verse 28, it uses the word Perez, P-E-R-E-S, Whereas in verse 25, it says Eupharsin. Did you ever wonder about that? Okay, here's the reason for the difference. Pharsin, P-H-A-R-S-I-N, is the plural of Perez. Remember how we talked about the I-N ending of a word in Aramaic is equal to the I-M ending in Hebrew, which is just like putting an S on a word. It makes a word plural. I-N, we're talking Aramaic makes a word plural. So Farsin is speaking of two Persias. Well, it was a divided kingdom. They were both from the area of modern-day Iran. Some were called Medes and some were called Persians. But it's like having two Persias, a joint kingdom. Now here's another thing. When the letter P comes after a consonant in Aramaic, it is pronounced PH. Get that? When a P comes after a consonant, it's not pronounced P, but F, like an F, P-H. Okay, well, if you're like me, you look at that word Eupharsin and you say, aha, but the P does not come after a consonant. It comes after a vowel, U. But in Aramaic, I don't know if this is true in uh, Hebrew too, maybe it is, the U is more like a W, Wa. Is that true in Hebrew? The U? Yes. Okay, thanks. <laughs> anyway, it's more like wa. So the P comes after a wa, and so they pronounced it PH, Farsin. You know what the U means? When it's a prefix, it's just stuck on top and in front of that word Perez or Farsin. Um, because it means and. You means and. So here's what Daniel was doing when he was reading the handwriting on the wall. He says, many, many, tekel, and Farson, double Persia, or divided. Now that was clear as mud, right? <laughs> 
But it wasn't, you know, it's difficult for us, but it was not at all difficult for Daniel to look at those words on the wall in the light of the present circumstances. I mean, he, he knew what was going on. Everybody in the city knew what was going on. They were, they'd been surrounded by the enemy Medes and Persians for um, four months at this point in time. Four months! And so he knows that. He also knows that Jeremiah had said that they would only be in Babylon for 70 years, and they're getting very close to that. He knew that the head of gold would be replaced by the Medo-Persian silver arms, you know, everything. He knew all this, so he could look at that, and he could know immediately, plus he had a gift of interpretation <laughs> from God, that he knew the basic message of that writing on the wall was about being done. You're finished. Your time is up. You've been numbered. Done deficient, you've been weighed, you're deficient, and you're going to be divided, you know, among the Persians, the joint kingdom of the Persians. Done, deficient, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. God was saying to the king, your number is up, Belshazzar. Time's up. That's why I entitled this lesson, Time's Up. You are a spiritual featherweight. Is that a word? Light as a feather. You don't even make a difference on the scale at all. You've been found seriously wanting. You and your kingdom are over, and you're going to be divided between the joint Persian forces. The finger writing on the wall was not a message of warning for Belshazzar. It wasn't a message of warning. It was a message of judgment. The days of warning were over. The king, who had had a much longer period of grace, grace, probationary grace, than his grandfather had had, because his grandfather only had that extra year, he had had 23 years since his grandfather gave his testimony back in chapter 4. But he had gone too far. He had stepped over that mysterious line between God's grace and God's mercy, and he had gone too far with his blasphemous behavior. And so it was over for him. <clears throat> you know, our days... God, God not only numbers our days, but he weighs our lives. <clears throat> and he not only weighs our lives, but he also records and judges our deeds. Every single person, every person is one day going to be placed upon the heavenly scales of God's justice. It tells us that. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then what? Then the scales. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't ever like standing on the scales. Do you? Mm. But after this, the judgment. <clears throat> now, for every believer, praise God, there will be no judgment for our sins. Aren't you glad for that? There is not going to be a judgment for our sins, because all of that, that judgment was taken care of some 2,000 years ago at a place called Calvary. But there will be judgment of our lives, our works. Only one life, so soon it's past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Whatever we have done in this life, it will be put through the fires, and all the wood, hay, and stubble will be burnt up. Everything we did that was really for self will be burnt up. What we did with a true motivation for him, out of love for him, that will last. And we will be rewarded for it. Well, let's move on and talk about the destroyed Belshazzar, verses 29 to 31. And I hope you don't have to leave early because the best is yet to come at the very end. All right, let's look at verses 29 to 30. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. How old was Darius? 62 years old. Okay, even though Daniel had almost almost rudely told Belshazzar to keep his gifts. Yet, what did they do? After hearing the interpretation, Belshazzar says, you know, clothe him in the scarlet. So he was dressed up, you know, with scarlet. They did put this big chunky gold chain around his neck, and they proclaimed him to be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, you can just picture old Daniel 
shaking his gray hair, his head, his gray-headed head, gray head. I am. <laughs> Maybe he was bald, and that would be easier to say. <laughs> shaking his head and saying, you guys, I can't believe it. You just don't get it, do you? you it's just not sinking in. <laughs> you have been divinely judged by the Most High God, the Lord of Heaven, you should be down here prostrate on your faces begging for mercy and repentant. But instead, you're still defying God by not listening to his prophet. Daniel said, I don't really care about the reward. Your kingdom is over. I mean, what good is a third in a kingdom that's not going to see the morning sun sunrise? But they, you know, they don't get it. I don't know if they, they probably went back to their cups, don't you think? And kept on drinking into the night. They just didn't get it. But he says, you know, basically he wants to say to them, rulership of this kingdom is no longer yours to give. Your time's up. Sadly, I noticed this too. You know, remember after he heard Nebuchadnezzar's dream about how he would become as a beast in the field and he gave Nebuchadnezzar his own unsolicited counsel Nebuchadnezzar didn't ask for it but Daniel went ahead and said you know if you want my advice here it is repent turn from your iniquities and, and do righteousness and show mercy to the poor do you see any unsolicited counsel or advice here that he gives to King Belshazzar no none uh, it, because it was already too late it was too late for Belshazzar well, in most cases like this, with such bad news, the bearer of the bad news was often put to death, you know, um, or thrown in a dungeon. At least, at least uh, Belshazzar didn't do that. I think that he was probably too scared to touch Daniel, don't you? And that's why he didn't. And maybe he was trying to appease his God by dressing him up and giving him power, third of the kingdom. Maybe he thought, well, you won't touch a kingdom if Daniel's the third in command. I don't know what his thinking was, but let's um, talk about his own murderous reward. In verse 30, uh, we know from history that, and also God had said this, he had predicted the way that Babylon would be taken. The Achilles heel of the Babylonian fortress was that the Euphrates River flowed right through the center of the city, right? We've talked about that. It made it beautiful, and they thought they had an infinite supply of fresh water. But God put the idea in somebody's mind in the Mede, Median army or the Persian army that they, would, that they should dig up an alternate channel so that the water flew into that channel and dried up the riverbed that went through the city. And therefore, they were able to walk under the walls of the city on the dried riverbed of the Euphrates, where the walls did not go 35 feet down into the ground. And they were able to march right in while the king and his lords and everybody in the town actually was partying because it was some kind of a feast, which the Medes and Persians knew that they would all be drunk that night. But they were able to just come in and take the city with hardly any bloodshed and without much force. Belshazzar was one of the very few who actually lost his life. Did you know that? That's amazing. I mean, the Medes and Persians were relatively, under Darius, relatively nice. And I told you later on when Cyrus, who was the emperor of the whole empire, the Medes and Persians, when he came into Babylon, they hailed him as a liberator. And he was really a nice guy. He let the Jews go back to Israel. All right, well, Ezekiel 18.20 says, the, sin, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it repeats that. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Daniel chapter 5 and the account of Belshazzar is a very vivid commentary on that truth. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Another vivid commentary um, on a verse would be Galatians 6.7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Boy, you cannot mock God and think you're going to get away with it. Belshazzar found that out, didn't he? Sin brings death not only to the individual, but sin will bring death to a nation. 
and even to an empire, and one day it will bring death to the entire anti-God, anti-Christ world system as well. Darius, who was 62 years of age, I'll talk about who he probably was when we come back, but I think he was General Igbaru, who was the one besieging the city. Um, he's now the new king of Babylon, of that city. Cyrus is the king over the whole empire, but he is the new king of Babylon. And uh, he turns out to be a relatively nice guy, too, even though he throws Daniel into a lion's den. He didn't want to. <laughs> All right, we'll talk more about him next, next year. Actually, this year, but in the fall. And now I want to conclude with something. I knew that there had to be something deep in all this that I was missing. And I kept searching for it and searching for it. And I knew it had to do with the finger of God writing on the wall. And I, was, I searched all my commentaries and I couldn't find what I was looking for. I knew there was something. I just knew because with God, everything has more meaning to it. And so it was like midnight on Saturday night this week passed, and I was, I was like Jacob wrestling with the Lord. Show me it. Show me it. I know it's in there. And I looked up every, in the concordance every time the finger of God was mentioned, and that's interesting, but it didn't have to do, you know, with, it says there's 11 times the finger of God is mentioned. You can look that up. That's an interesting study. But some of them were that he, with his finger, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he created us. And, but there was only, I finally found it, and it was in somebody's sermon that they had given up, an old guy, back a long, long time ago. And he had just a short, short little sermon, but the minute I saw it, I said, that's it, thank you, Lord. And I started crying, and I woke up my husband, and he started crying when I shared it with him. But do you know that there are only three occasions in the scripture Three occasions when God himself personally wrote a message for humanity with a finger of his hand. Three of them. One in the beginning of the Bible, one in the middle of the Bible, and one in the New Testament. And they spell out for us the gospel message. I knew it was there, and it is. It's there, and I can't believe I've never seen it before. The first message, the first message is found in Exodus 31:18. And the message of God when he wrote this one was law. The law. You see it was with the finger of God that he carved out two stone tablets and wrote on both sides of those tablets his commandments. The law. Do do this, obey this and you will be blessed. <clears throat> right? Don't obey, and you will be cursed. Now, when Moses descended from Mount Sinai with those two stone tablets carved out with a finger of God, what did he find going on down below? <laughs> the Israelites were worshiping a golden calf already into idol worship. And in his great rage and fury, you see Charlton Heston throwing down those stone tablets, right? And they, they, they broke into thousands of pieces there on the ground. Not only did Moses literally break God's written law, but Israel and all humanity ever since have continually broken his commandments, right? Generation after generation. Under the law, all of us stand condemned, don't we? Because there, was no, there is no one who can fulfill the law. We can't even get past the Ten Commandments, much less the 613 commandments of the whole law. Even the Apostle Paul said, you know, he started going down the Ten Commandments. Yep, yeah, I've never put any other God before me. And he went down, checked them all off. And he was doing pretty good and felt pretty good about himself. I've done this. I've never been an adulterer. I've never been a murderer. And then he got to thou shalt not covet. And he said, whoop, I've never done these things, but I've wanted to. We're all sinners. We are all under the condemnation of the law. Well, the second time God's finger wrote a message on, uh, for humanity, <laughs> I almost gave it away, it was on a wall. He wrote it on a wall, not on a stone tablet, but on a wall, and it's the one we've been looking at. And you know what that me message said? Judgment. Judgment. In Babylon, at Belshazzar's blasphemous, God-defying banquet, 
the finger of God suddenly appeared to write another message, specifically to Belshazzar and all those like him, which would include you and I. Really, includes all of us. And that message is many, many, take you farson. Your time is up, because one day our time will be up. The number of your days has come, and you are weighed on the heavenly scales of righteous justice, and guess what? Found to be severely deficient, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Right? You think you could get on the scale and ever weigh up the balance to God's righteousness, your righteousness, and his righteousness? What do you think? All of us, together in this room, we all put our righteousness on one side of that scale. Do you think we'd balance with God's righteousness? Do you think of the whole world, every person who ever lived, from Adam to the last person who will ever <laughs> be created? No, all of our righteousness together would still be like this. God's, you know, God's here, he's heavy, and we're, we're feather-like. We're, we're like feathers, nothing. We can't. We all come up short. Many, many, take you farson. You've been weighed, and you've found, been found deficient. So you're done. And, and everything that we have built up in our own little earthly kingdoms, and don't we all have our own little earthly kingdoms that we've built? All of that is going to be taken from us and divided to others. Do you know someday somebody, will probably, somebody else will be living in your house and eating off of your china? <gasps> but such is the fate. That is the fate that awaits every single one of us if it were not for the third time that God wrote a message with his finger. And the third time God's message was grace, grace, mercy. And the member of the Trinity who used his finger to write that message is the one who made grace possible. In John chapter 8, either the man who had sinned with her jumped out the window or he was unfairly let go. But they took her, they grabbed her and dragged her down to the temple where they knew he would be teaching who? Jesus. They knew he would be teaching there. And the self-righteous hypocrites wanted not only to put that woman, that adulterous woman, to open public shame, but they really wanted to put him to open public shame. They were going to use her. They probably set the whole thing up. But they were going to use her to try to trick him. They had a question. And they thought that this question, either way he answered it, he would be doomed because that would end the people's interest in him. So they asked, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. In other words, we know she is guilty, guilty, guilty. We caught her in the act. And what were they, a bunch of peeping toms? And they said, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? You know what they wanted him to do? They wanted him to contradict Moses. <laughs> they wanted him to contradict what he himself had written with his finger on that stone, those stone tablets, right? Because that was his finger that wrote on those stone tablets too, the law. But they wanted him to contradict the law and say, let her go. And then what would they say? Aha, you have no respect for Moses or the law. You're a lawbreaker. You, 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 don't, you don't qualify to be the savior because you're a lawbreaker. And you have contradicted your own words when you said you had not come to f destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But then they thought, you know, if, if he answers that, they were ready. If that was the way he answered, you know, let her go, they were ready, but... They were also ready if he said, stone her to death. Go ahead, fulfill the law, do what you're supposed to do, and stone her to death. But they knew that if he said that, the people would be severely disappointed, and their rulers would have ridiculed him of not being the friend of sinners and prostitutes and adulteresses and publicans like he said he was. 
the people would have determined that his words about coming to seek and to save that which was lost meant nothing. And hope in him as the one to set them free from the heavy yoke of the law would have been abandoned. So they thought they had him either way he answered. <laughs> you can't ever get Jesus, right? You can never trick Jesus. So their big question was... Um, what was he going to do about this very, obviously, very guilty woman? And what he did was he said absolutely nothing, did he, at first? He said nothing to them, and instead he stooped down, and with his finger, that same finger that wrote the law, the same finger that wrote judgment on the wall, he wrote something in the dirt of the ground. What did he write? We have no idea. You can speculate all day long. And it's interesting to speculate what he wrote, but we don't know. But he wrote something, and then he lifted himself up, and I think he made eye contact with every one of those hypocrites who wanted to condemn her. Made eye contact with him, and he said, He that is without sin among you, cast the first stone at her. And then what did he do? Stooped down again, wrote some more words in the sand, and we found out that one by one, from the eldest to the youngest, every man there peeled away, disappeared. And you know who else could have disappeared? The woman. But she didn't, did she? She stayed there. She knew she was condemned under the law, and she wanted to be forgiven. So when he looked up, he says, where are your accusers? You know? And she says, there's no man here, Lord. And he who can read the heart. You know what he said to her? Because he knew she accepted him as her Lord. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And what was it? You say, what was it that allowed him to have the right to say that to her? How can he just ignore the law and let her go? Well, it was because he himself was going to be condemned in her place. He didn't merely dismiss her sin, did he? He would die for her sin. That's the message of grace. Three times in the Bible. Have you ever seen it before? Wrestle with God and you can find amazing things. I was so excited. I thought, what a great way to end the year, Lord. You wrote the gospel to mankind three times. Law. We're all under judgment under the law. But because of Christ, we have grace that sets us free. What a savior. So we stand condemned already because we're born with the Adamics in nature, right? We stand condemned already. But then by choice, we also choose to be sinners. Sooner or later, usually as a baby, give me that bottle. <laughs> All self-centered, all have sinned, come short. And one day, each and every one of us will stand before God to be placed on those heavenly scales of righteous justice. And the only thing in that day that will matter is which of the two messages apply to us, the other two. If, if we like Belshazzar, and there's so many people out there like him, that rely on their own perceived importance, Oh, God, you know, you'll let me into heaven because look at who I am. I am so important. I'm a king. <laughs> Big deal. Or those who relied on their own good works, right? Even in his name, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. If we put our own thoughts and our own ways above his, which so many people do, don't they? They think they know better than God, and so they say, well, there's more ways to God than just one, and they come up with all these things. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of destruction, right? And those by the billions who have worshipped idols, idols of their own imaginations, when they get on that scale, they're going to find out the horror news of that second message, judgment. Many, many, tackle you, farson. You've been numbered, weighed, and found deficient. Depart. 
into everlasting judgment. You know, the lake of fire that I didn't even prepare for you. I prepared it for the devil and the fallen angels. But if this is your choice, depart from me. But it's not his will that any man should perish, right? That's why he sent his son. That's why Jesus came. Is so that third message, that message of grace. And if we look to Jesus as the adulterous woman did, as Lord as the author and finisher of our faith, and instead of that horrible second message of judgment, what are we going to hear? Enter into the joy of the Lord. So what's it going to be for you when, when that day comes? Are you going to be found wanting, stamped found wanting, or are you going to be stamped paid in full by the blood of the sinless Lamb of God? Please don't leave here without knowing the Savior. Please, I beseech you. And if you're in doubt, come to me, come to Terry, to come to one of our leaders, and let's settle that today, right? So that we're all paid in full. When we get on those scales, we have nothing to worry about because he took our sins and gave us his righteousness. What a swap. And it's free. He can have my sin any day. I'll take his righteousness any day. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For the truth of your word and how it is so deep. And thank you, thank you for giving me this message. I know others have found it too. But I get so excited when I find a nugget of gold like this. Thank you and I pray that we'll all share this with those in our own circle of influence. And get other people excited about your word. No one but you could write something like this. It's so perfect from beginning to end. It's your word. It's so true. It's so wonderful. I just wish... The whole world knew what we knew and that we could be just more committed to sharing it. Forgive me for the times I don't share it except with your own people. I feel so guilty about that. But thank you, Lord Jesus, for this extra wonderful year of studying the book of Daniel, your servant Daniel. Help us to be more like him in every way because he was such, such a great servant, such a faithful, uncompromising, bold servant for you. May I be like that. May each of us be like that in these dark days. For we do pray in the blessed name of our wonderful Savior, that name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.